Flow Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycled clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnicware strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnicware on Instagram at Picnicware, and that's where, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicware.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. With an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between, Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of May, St. Evans is supporting Labor Behind the Label, an anti-sweatshop campaign working to improve conditions and empower workers in the global garment industry. 
New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where Saint Evans. Welcome to Close Wars, the podcast that has been fantasizing about all of us watching 9 to 5, the cinematic masterpiece, together. Wouldn't that be so fun? I've been like, how can we make that work with technology? Because I rewatched that movie last year. It holds up. It's so good. (laughs) So if anybody has any suggestions there, anyway, we all need to watch 9 to 5 this month to get really riled up. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 73, the first episode of Labor Month. Some people call it May. And I have to say, I'm so excited about all the rad episodes we have coming this month. Today, we're going to get things started off with a bang with part one of my conversation with Shelby. She got her start as an activist fighting for garment workers' rights in college as a member of the group United Students Against Sweatshops, or USAS. I'm going to call it USAS for the rest of this episode because the name, the full name, is quite a tongue twister. She literally turned that into a job working for USAS. You're going to hear all about it. There are swamps involved. It's a great story. (laughs) She's going to talk to us about the kinds of issues USAS is fighting for, has been fighting for, the actions they've used to educate the public and also get retailers to commit to change, and she'll show us some tips for how we can get involved in the fight for workers' rights. I also have two messages about some listener experiences with their jobs, and I can't wait for you to hear them. They're great. Before we get into that, though, we have to take a moment to thank some of our newest supporters on Patreon. First is Elizabeth Tooten, who writes an inspiring weekly newsletter called Something Good. I subscribe. It's great. It's a little treat that arrives in your inbox every week. This week's newsletter was about a super cool installation that paired Monet with Liechtenstein, and that totally sounds weird, but it works so perfectly. She also gives you a lot of tips about your consumption, being a better consumer, and it's just inspiring too. It's all good vibes. You can find Elizabeth on Instagram at zhuzh by Elizabeth, and I'm just glad that I am not the only person who loves the word zhuzh. It's a regular part of my vocabulary, and I highly recommend you sign up for something good. Thank you for your support, Elizabeth. Next is Lindsay Hagerty, aka Part-Time Poodle. She's another Pittsburgh person, which, spoiler, our guest today, Shelby, is a Pittsburgh person too. Pittsburgh really comes out hard for Close Horse, and I really appreciate it. Lindsay is making some super cute clothes out of secondhand textiles, so please go check her out. Once again, that's part-time poodle. And thank you so much for your support, Lindsay. Next is Sally Benstalton, a Californian and definitely the first arborist in our community. And by the way, being an arborist is a super badass job. It means caring for trees which is so important. I I love trees. I guess you might call me a tree hugger. 
Thank you so much for your support, Sally. And lastly is Tabitha Davis, who unfortunately is very mysterious on the internet, but I'm still super grateful for to have her support. And I'm assuming Tabitha is super rad, just like everybody else in our community. Thank you so much, Tabitha. If you're interested in joining this group of the coolest people ever by supporting my work on Close Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash Podcast. You can also send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Caroline did that last week, and I am so grateful for her support. Thank you to all of you who already support me, whether it's with money or by recommending the podcast to others, sharing our content on Instagram, or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. And thank you, as always, for listening. Hey, I have a question for you. Are you ready for a clothes horse IRL? I'm in the extremely early stages of planning some live shows for the late summer slash early fall. Obviously, all subject to the pandemic, but it seems like a lot of states here in the U.S. are planning a full reopening by midsummer. I obviously want this to be the safest, most comfortable environment possible, so nothing will be firmly planned until we know how things are going. But I've never done anything like this before, and I've had a few parties where no one showed up. I mean, don't ask me about my 10th birthday. It was terrible. But even as an adult, you know how people would always like RSVP to events on Facebook, like you'd put your party on there. I don't think people do that anymore. But anyway, 100 people would RSVP, 10 would show up, five of them would show up an hour before it started. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Right now, all episodes of Close Horse are recorded behind a carved wooden screen covered with a moving blanket because trapping those sound waves makes a much better sound. That's not much of a compelling stage show. I mean, I don't think you guys wouldn't even be able to see me. So after weeks of brainstorming about this, fretting, thinking through all kinds of ideas, I decided on a format that I am super excited about. And so is Dustin. He's already got lots of visions for music and like video intros and stuff for it. And that is 90s talk show. Think like Sally and Ricky and all those iconic women of the 90s. I would put Oprah in that category, but like Oprah's way too fancy. <laughs> this isn't going to be that fancy. <laughs> anyway, we're going to be doing this talk show format, but without the DNA tests and the makeovers, we're really going to talk about things that are important to the close horse community. Each show will have four to five super cool and interesting local guests, and we'll talk about that episode's topic. And I'll also provide a lot of research and educational multimedia content to go along with it. But the best part this is the part I'm most excited about. I'm going to be spending a lot of time in the audience taking your questions and opinions. But I need your help to plan this because this is expensive. This is a lot of effort. This is very risky. And I need enough people to turn out in order to make it worth my time and to actually like have enough audience there to ask questions of. So I created a quick and easy survey that is designed to give me an idea of where I should go and what you want to see. Please take a few moments to fill it out. You can find it at bit.ly slash ch IRL. I tried to make it as easy as possible. And don't worry, I'll share that link in the show notes. But if you're listening to this episode, you're clearly a fan. So please go take that survey for me. I also added that to the link tree and my Instagram profile, so you can find it there too. Thank you in advance, and I can't wait to meet you all IRL.
All right. Well, let's plug in the Hello Kitty phone and take some messages about work. That's right. Throughout Labor Month, I'll be sharing stories from members of our community. And it doesn't matter what kind of job you have or have had. You can be unemployed. I want to hear about it. If you're not working right now, that's just as important as if you are working right now. Also, let's all agree here and now that caring for your family is also a job. So I want to hear all about that too. We're all in this together. Solidarity means standing up for one another and ourselves. Everything we've known about work, capitalism, and what it means to be a worker has been challenged in the last year. I mean, how many of you have been working at home? How many of you lost your jobs? How many of you have been struggling with the unemployment system or trying to start your own business? This is a great time for us to demand change, to obliterate, just destroy that expectation that your work is always more important than you. That's what I'll be continuing to break down throughout Labor Month, and I would love to hear from all of you. Your stories about your experiences working are so powerful and so important for everyone else to hear, and I think I think that they can inspire some really groundbreaking conversations. I'm really excited about revisiting, reframing, and changing some minds about our relationships with work. Even the little bits of stories that I've picked up working on Anti-Brunch Society and reading your post comments are inspiring me for potential show topics and areas of research. But more importantly, sometimes you have to hear someone else's stories to truly see and understand your own experiences. I, I know I do. So how do you share your stories? Well, you can write an email to amanda at closehorse.world. Please do not DM that to me because it will probably get lost and your story definitely deserves better than that. You can call the Close Horse hotline. That's 717-925-7417. You'll be cut off after about uh, two minutes, but you can just call back, continue your message, do that as many times as you want, and I will splice your messages together. I do it all the time. Or... You can record a voice memo on your phone or computer and email it to me. Both the messages I'm going to play today were actually recorded that way. And then there's no time limit. So it's really just about what feels most comfortable for you. And once again, that email is amanda at closehorse.world. So send me your stories, no matter where you worked, no matter whether you loved or hated it. And it can be totally anonymous. One of our messages today is anonymous. Just tell me when you send the message that you do not what your name included. Okay, well, let's take our first message. It's from an anonymous listener. Hey, Amanda. So I just wanted to call and give you my experience working two very different jobs. Um, The first one was at Disneyland. I was a host at one of the restaurants in the hotel, and I was part of a union. And that was my first and only experience so far in a union. Um, If For those of you who don't know, Disneyland has a lot of different unions, Um, even within the park. There's one for like entertainment. And then even in the hotels, there's one for like housekeeping. The one I was part of was like the restaurants. And yeah, when you got hired, you pretty much signed a paper saying you joined. And I knew there was a way that you could opt out of it, but most people just did it. The good thing about the union is that they're there to protect you and not your managers because anyone above... 
um, like a lead, which was kind of like a supervisor, was not part of the union. So if you ever, you know, got in trouble or needed any sort of like backup or if you had any issues within the workplace with your manager or anything really, they were there to protect you, which was good. Um, I will say the downside though, if you never had any issues like that, you had to pay union dues. It's kind of like insurance, you know, you, um, if you don't use it, you lose it type of thing. So, uh, I forget now the exact amount, but I remember it was like something like a hundred plus dollars a month. And for me, I was making 15 an hour at the time and it really, I definitely noticed it missing from my paycheck. So, you know, pros and cons, but I'm sure I would have been really grateful had I needed the union. And then my other job was at Forever 21. I was an assistant visual manager and I was with the company for about six months and then got let go due to restructuring. And I say that, um, if you can't tell a little sarcastically, because that was right before they went bankrupt and they were really just trying to save money and, um, kind of let go of people that they didn't, that they saw disposable, that they could still run, you know, run a store without all these managers. And what I heard what they ended up doing was um, having other just regular associates become like supervisor key holders and give them little to no pay raise and just have them close and open the store like the assistant managers would have done. For me, like I said, I was only there six months, so uh, and I didn't really like it too much, to be honest anyway. So I was like, you know, whatever. I got my experience, I can move on. Um, however, my counterpart in the operations, um, who also got let go, she was with the company for 10 plus years and was totally blindsided. Um, so, you know, in that case, if we would have had a union, that either wouldn't have happened or um, it just would have been handled differently, I think. So anyway, pros and cons to, you know, a union job and a non-union job. Um, and I just wanted to tell you that. So um, I hope you're having a great day and I'll talk to you later. Bye. Okay. I'm so glad that this caller mentioned unions. I do wonder if her time working at Forever 21 would have ended differently if there had been a union involved there. I've kind of got union madness right now because I've been doing so much reading and thinking about it. And this week I read an amazing article from Fast Company about my new hero, Sarah Nelson. She's a union leader who heads the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA, AFL, CIO. And she's been a United Airlines flight attendant since 1996. I'm going to share that article in the show notes because I definitely think it's worth a read and it will totally demonstrate the importance of unions and really get you thinking about how maybe where you work, the industry you work in, could be impacted positively by unions. For example, she tells the story of the beginning of her career as a flight attendant when for some reason her paychecks just weren't coming. She was afraid of making too much of a fuss of losing her job, so she meekly reached out to HR to inquire about it. Still, the paychecks were not coming. She was taking extra flights just to get some airplane meals to eat. She couldn't even afford to tip the van driver who took her home from the airport. And finally, she went to visit the hub office to inquire about her paycheck. And all that happened was she got the runaround. So I, I love this from the article. I'm reading directly from this article in Fast Company. Once again, the link will be in the show notes. She says, quote, This was the first time in my life that I felt like I was just a number. 
the tears started to roll. And I feel this tap on the shoulder and I turn around and someone was standing there who I'd never met before, but she looks just like me. We're in the same uniform. And she asked me how to spell my name. The woman wrote Nelson a check for $800. She said, why don't you go take care of yourself? And number two, you call our union. And I did. I had my paycheck the very next day. She continues, I learned everything I needed to know about our union in that moment. Because in our union, we take care of each other and we're never alone. The article continues, quote, would you give a new coworker $800? If you can't imagine doing it, Nelson wants you to know that that's exactly what your boss wants you to think. Creating real bonds between people who work together every day is the only thing that will allow them to be truly empowered in the workplace. She says, that's what solidarity is, standing up for each other. However different you feel you are from the person next to you at the warehouse or the auto plant or the corporate office, you are equally connected by your work. You've got way more in common than anything that divides you. And this is on my mind. I, as I read this article, I mean, I've read it like five times now and thought about it a lot. I thought about specifically my experiences working in retail and how if there had been a union, certain aspects of my life would have been different. For example, I've talked about this before, my boss forgot to file my paperwork for my health insurance and the corporation that employed me said, sorry, now you have to wait another year for you know open enrollment to get health insurance. So I had to wait another year and have no health insurance at that point because I didn't qualify for any medical assistance, got hit by a car on my bike, couldn't even afford treatment for my injuries. And I if I had had a union, I could have gone to my union rep and they would like, no, you're getting your insurance, right? I think about the times that I or my coworkers, our paychecks just never arrived. That wouldn't happen with a union. And I think about all the dumb scheduling that happens in retail environments. I'm sure in warehouses too. I'm sure in restaurants. I mean, all of these things are so common in so many jobs. I mean, I worked for a company for a very long time that did not have an HR department, which meant if someone was bullying you, being inappropriate with you, sexually harassing you, or you witnessed any of this kind of stuff going on, the expectation was that you were supposed to tell your boss, which I can tell you never worked out, never led to any positive change. And once again, if there had been a union involved in my job at that employer, there would have been a chain of command, a place where I could go and discuss these issues. This is why, I mean, you hear this all the time, I'm sure. You hear about how Amazon doesn't want a union and does everything to squash it. Target has done the same thing. Walmart does that. I mean, tons and tons of retailers, but other companies as well. And it's because they don't want to have to care for their workers. They don't want to have to protect them. They don't want the cost of doing things the right way. And that's really problematic to me. I mean, this really goes back to this idea of profits over people. And I I can't even support a retailer who won't let its workers unionize. Like that's another that's another thing to put on the list of assholes who don't get to have my money. You know, put that on the list. If you're not letting people unionize and care for one another and have that sort of solidarity that is beneficial for everyone, 
I don't think you get to have my money because these kinds of things, these bad behaviors, they all they all coexist with other bad behaviors. If you're not allowing your workers to unionize, you're up to all kinds of other bad shenanigans behind the scenes. And so this is just the tip of the iceberg. Just something I'm like totally ranting right now, but this is what is on my mind this month as we talk about the workers who make the stuff we buy, work in retail stores, package our orders at the warehouse, serve our food, ring up our groceries, deliver our orders, teach our children, provide healthcare, and on and on and on. We are all workers. Unless you're one of the executives making the decision to exploit workers, which if you are, you're not listening to Close Horse. So I'm assuming all of you are in fact workers. You're in this category. You have way more in common with the garment workers making your clothes than you might think. Even if you work in an office, you have way more in common with the people serving your lunch, caring for the elderly, working in the retail store, you name it. Do you feel that your employer reciprocates your loyalty? Is your employer looking out for you? Or are you just a line on a spreadsheet, a cog in a machine? And here's one, here's one that will really help you realize the nature of your employment. If forced to choose between profit or you, would your employer choose you? I mean, listen, I've learned this lesson the hard way. (laughs) We're all workers and we need to protect one another. In her time as a union organizer, Sarah Nelson has addressed all kinds of incredible things that you would think for some of them at least, would be outside of the scope of a union, but they're not. Sexual harassment in the workplace, big deal for flight attendants. The grounding of the 737 MAX, she really harnessed the power of the flight attendants to say like, hey, we don't want to be endangered by flying on this airplane. She also worked to protect flight attendants even during the pandemic when that industry was falling apart, where there were a lot of threatened furloughs, layoffs, reductions in benefits, et cetera. And she said, no, you're going to need us when this is over and we're going to protect everyone right now. She even mobilized the power of the union to free a flight attendant who was wrongly held in an ICE detention facility. She says, you have to fight. You can't think that not fighting is giving you any power. Using power builds power. And I love that so much because that power comes from us. That comes from our community. That comes from growing our community into a movement where we all look out for one another because we realize that no matter where we work or don't work, we're all in this together. When one of us succeeds, When one of us is having a good life, we all succeed. We all have a good life. We'll be talking about unions a lot more this month. Obviously, I'm very passionate about it. But if I were going to say what the secondary theme of Labor Month is after, you know, labor, I would say it is power in solidarity by supporting one another, by sharing our stories, by realizing together that we can change what it means to be a worker and restore the balance of power between employer and employee. Next, we're going to hear a message from Susan Massey, who is a bit of a regular around here. And 
I'm going to warn you, this is a really intense story and its theme is anti-fat bias in the workplace. So if that is something that is triggering for you, I would just suggest you fast forward the next 15 minutes or so. Hi, Amanda. This is Susan Massey. I wanted to share something uh, for Labor Month about some experiences that I unfortunately have had at many workplaces. And that um, is my experiences with fat phobia. Um, Part of the reason why I want to talk about this is because I think that people who are not and have never been fat um, really don't understand how insidious and nasty fat phobia is and how it can affect like a supervisor or colleague, you know, having this type of bias can really affect um, the way fat people are treated in the workplace. And um, also, of course, because we spend so much time at work and our work often becomes such a huge part of our identity, it affects our overall quality of life. Um, So as we talked about before, I worked in social work for many years uh, when I was still living in Michigan before I moved to California. That was what I did, you know, from the time I graduated college until I moved um, to the Bay Area in 2005. And during the last four years of that time, um, I was working at a residential center for women who were on probation and federal parole. And there were a lot of things I really loved about that job. Um, The program itself at its core was really, really great. But um, the woman who was the program manager my boss, uh, she was extremely problematic. She was fat phobic. Um, she was very racist, homophobic, classist, you know, the list goes on. And I think, um, it's important to talk about that because rarely does someone have one single bias. Usually they kind of They kind of all go together as a set, unfortunately. And so, yeah, so she was she was very hard to deal with um, for myself and some of my coworkers, including one particular colleague who was fat and black. And so she dealt with a lot of the program managers nastiness on a regular basis. And I will say that this particular coworker and I, we ended up becoming very close friends outside of work. And um, we really supported each other through a lot of what we dealt with. And I am so grateful for that. Um, And this is important because I think a lot of times when people are dealing with um, supervisors or colleagues that have like these nasty biases, if you vent to someone who hasn't experienced it or doesn't have like a basic level of empathy, they're going to minimize your experience or maybe turn it around and say like, oh, I think you're just being hypersensitive and you're reading into it too much. I don't think she meant it that way, blah, blah, blah. So um, for my coworker and I to, you know, really hold each other through all of this and take care of each other was just an absolute godsend. Um, Anyway, so... 
something else, another piece of, you know, the fat phobia and how it plays out in the workplace is that a lot of people, whether they realize it or not, when they have a fat phobic bias, I, um, it, they also seem to think that fat people are stupid and lazy. And this can definitely affect how your, your supervisor or colleagues will treat you when they have that kind of bias. And for me, I felt like I could never make a mistake at work because when I did, it got turned into, oh, why do, why do I, you know, entrust Susan with anything because she's incompetent, you know, or, and, you know, I was constantly being told that I wasn't working hard enough when, in fact, I worked my butt off. I was the employee that was, you know, I was constantly working overtime. I would do 12-hour shifts on short notice sometimes. Um, I For years that I was there, until the last year, in fact, that I worked there, I worked all of the holidays, every single holiday. And I would always try to make the best of it for my residence sake. Um, but, you know, working third shift on New Year's Eve really isn't much fun. And I did that for years. Um, you know, Christmas, Thanksgiving, all of them. So uh, I definitely was not lazy at all. Um, you know, but I was kind of had that label, I think, because I was fat. I was about a size 20, 22 at the time. Um, but one incident that really sticks out is that <laughs> uh, it's hard for me to talk about without getting a little bit emotional. So bear with me if I get a little verklempt, feel free to edit, edit it out. <laughs> um, one of my tasks was that I had to verify my residence work schedules. And in order to do that, I needed uh, I needed access to a phone and a computer so that I could document everything. Um, I would call all of my residents' um, employers. They would submit their work schedule to me, and then I would just verify it, call their employer, and then verify it with them. And it usually didn't take me long at all. Um, the employers, they all knew what the deal was. They knew that I was going to be calling them, you know, usually did it on Sundays, Uh so, but I was told if there's too much ruckus going on in the main office, go ahead and use one of the case manager's office and, you know, keep maybe keep the door open so that if somebody, if another staff needs you, you know, they can give you a shout, which was no problem. And I, um, that was what I would usually do. I went, there was one case manager in particular that was very young and conventionally pretty and yes, thin. And the program manager absolutely loved her, doted on her. She was like the princess of the facility. <laughs> and she had had a birthday one week. And I go into her office and um, there's a birthday card sitting next to the computer. And I was, I just kind of glanced at it. And then I noticed that... The picture on the front of the birthday card was a like circus sideshow, an old photo of like a circus sideshow fat lady, like from the 1930s. And it had been like colored in by the greeting card company. And the circus lady, circus fat lady had red hair. And then on the photo, they had added um, like a 
crown and a fairy wand and these fairy wings. And the front of the card said, happy birthday. I'm the birthday fairy, dot, dot, dot. And, you know, there's glitter and everything all over it. And then you open it up and the card says, and I just ate your birthday cake. Have a great one anyway. And I was like, Ugh, okay. Then I look at the inside of the card, the inside flap of the card, and there's an arrow pointing to, you know, pointing to the picture on the outside. And it says, ha, 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 it's Susan. I was floored. But I wasn't really surprised, you know, after being treated so badly by my boss for so long. But that kind of like, oh, okay, now there's no getting around it. Like, she just despises me um, because I'm fat. And I remember just feeling, like, so angry, but knowing that I couldn't do anything about it. You know, if I would have confronted her, even though I had been told, like, go use the case manager's office if it's too, you know, too chaotic in the front office, even though I was doing what I was supposed to do to do my job more efficiently, it would have turned into, you know, my boss was the type of person that she would have twisted it into, why were you in her office and why were you snooping? Never mind that I'd been told to use her office and that the card was sitting right next to the computer. Um, and then I started thinking maybe this case manager wanted me to see this, you know, because she knew that I would sometimes go sit in her office. And, you know, if the boss had put that on there about me, why wouldn't she just take that card home? Why did she leave it there? And, you know, my mind is just spinning. And then I was like, you know what? I can't, I can't think about this. You know, um, I cannot let this get to me. I just, I'm here to do my job. And, and that's that. I talked to my therapist about it. Um, and I talked to my coworker about it. And my coworker actually, when the case manager wasn't there, she went in and she looked at the card and she was like, oh, my God. And she said, you know, that the program manager, she said she needs to get a life. <laughs> she needs to get a life, get, you know, get a freaking hobby or something. You know, that is ridiculous. And just hearing my coworker, you know, no, knowing that she she was supporting me meant so much. Um, but I look back on it now and I've told this story to a few people and they've said, oh, well, she obviously has a lot of problems, you know, if she's going to do something like that and, you know, you shouldn't have let it bother you. Well, here's the thing. I agree that my, my, uh, boss at that place had a lot of problems. I mean, you know, the fact that I, I think sometimes like, when I think about it now, I think, did she specifically pick that card out so that she could make a joke at my expense? Because that's really messed up. And, um, you know, the fact that she would put my name on something, make fun of me in something that I, you know, had nothing to do with me. It's like, why do you have to make a joke about me to this staff member on her birthday? What is What the hell is that about, you know? Um the fact that she would do that, obviously, she does, she did, whatever, have a lot of problems. Um, 
And yeah, I can look at that and be like, well, she's really, she's really kind of pathetic. But in addition to that, she was my boss. So she was in charge of approving my vacation time. She was in charge of, you know, approving my schedule overall and, you know, seeing what shifts I got. And, you know, if I, if I could get the days off that I needed, um, she was also, you know, doing my annual reviews and it was pretty much up to her whether or not I would get raises every year, you know, and how I would be graded on my reviews, so on and so forth. You know, I couldn't just write it off because this woman had power over me. And this was Kalamazoo, Michigan. So good jobs that paid, you know, that paid well, um, didn't exactly grow on trees, especially in, you know, a field like social work. Um, so yeah, so her fat phobic bias really cut deeply. And, um, I cannot stress enough, like how important it is that when someone comes to you with, you know, information about, you know, or a story about something like this happening, even if you are not part of that marginalized group, it's really important to at least hear that person validate them and let them, you know, and, and hold them through it. You know, that's like my friend that I worked with. Um, if she told me that this, the boss had said or done something racist, which happened all the time, um, I wouldn't sit there and say, oh, you know, I think you're just reading into it too much. I, I don't think she meant it that way. No, because there were subtleties of, of racism that I would not pick up on because I'm not a woman of color that, that my friend would totally, you know, my friend would totally pick up on that. And I think for fat people, there's almost this attitude that, you know, oh, if you don't like it, change yourself. No, no, we need to, you know, fat people <laughs> must be treated with respect in the workplace, in every place, but especially in the workplace. And, um, you know, a bias like this is really damaging. And this woman was creating a very hostile work environment. Um, and when I left there, I made a vow that I would never allow myself to be treated like that by a supervisor or coworker ever again. And, you know, I've, I've stuck to that. I've confronted people, uh, when I could as, you know, in as level-headed a manner as possible. And, um, you know, like I've taken action <laughs> against employers, um, especially, you know, like the one I wrote about for the blog. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you too for, for providing this platform. And I hope I didn't ramble too much. Have a wonderful weekend. Bye. After listening to Susan's story, I realized that it was more important than ever to collect and share all of your stories this month. Like this was the light bulb moment for me. What struck me most of all in her story was the powerlessness, that feeling that there was nothing she could do to remedy a fucked up situation. And I think we all tend to gaslight ourselves in these situations like, 
there's no way my boss could be fat phobic or racist or classist because they're my boss. It goes back to our childhood thinking that our parents and our teachers were perfect, incapable of error. So I'm happy to hear that Susan recognizes this, that Susan was not the problem. Her boss was. That's major. But I have found myself on the other side where I have said, you know, my boss wouldn't treat me that way or treat other people that way if we were better. And that that's my own unpacking and working through the abuse I experienced as a child, which I got to tell you, makes me an amazing target for bullying and manipulation in the workplace. Once again, I'm working through that. Our bosses should be unbiased and fair, but we know that that's rarely true. Specifically in my experience in the fashion industry, there just isn't a lot of leadership training or accountability for those kinds of behaviors. I mean, as I've talked about before, if you've watched The Devil Wears Prada, it's basically an HR film for the industry. And I think there's something in that industry specifically that allows managers or encourages managers to be fat phobic, to be racist, to be classist, and to be cruel because that's what fashion's supposed to be. It's bullshit, of course, but just what I've seen out there. In my last job, I never even told my boss that I had a child because she was so classist and judgy that I knew if she found out I had a kid out of wedlock at a young age, she would be weird and mean with me. If she knew I came from a trailer park, well, forget it. I would lose my job instantly, right? I would be bullied until I quit, something like that. And I remember you know, going to a meeting at another brand on our campus and seeing someone in a pretty powerful leadership position there just brutally bullying someone who was also a leader below her in the ladder in front of a whole group of her team and other teams. And I... It was so painful. The cruelty was just so triggering for me that I had to grab my laptop and just leave. And when I talked to my boss about it later, her response was, well, maybe she wouldn't get treated that way if she did a better job. And I thought, wow, this industry is so fucked because the quality of your work, of course, if that's an issue, there are ways to approach that and there are ways to help someone grow and mentor them into being more skillful at their jobs, right? But Well, first off, I'm going to tell you that's not what was happening here when you're literally tearing someone apart because of the way they hung something on a wall. I don't really think we're talking about someone's ability to do their job. Uh, But I could feel that worker's just total powerlessness in the face of this bully. And I, I see this here with Susan's story, and I realize that this is so common. I thought maybe it was just in the fashion industry where you feel terrible and frightened most of the time. But in fact, it seems like it's in a lot of industries. And it shouldn't be that way. You certainly shouldn't ever find out that your boss is making fun of you in a super dumb greeting card. You should never hear them say shitty, classist, racist things in meetings. And like Susan said, rarely does someone have one single bias. If there's one, there's a whole bunch more. They're all traveling buddies, right? But unfortunately, people are flawed. People who are biased and cruel, they shouldn't be bosses. We should be redefining what it takes to be a manager, what qualifies someone for that role. And I think they can't be cruel. 
They can't be biased. They have to rise above that. They have to be kind. They have to have empathy. But right now, in many industries and many companies, it's really about who's like the most cutthroat, who's working the hardest, who's the most competitive. And I wonder if we redefined that, if we might see work being a little less shitty. So many of the stories I've encountered so far during Labor Month discuss ridiculous abuse by bosses. Bullying, snide remarks, screaming in the office, and all kinds of other completely unacceptable behavior. I'm sorry, but no one should be yelling in an office unless the office is on fire and you want everyone to know. I would also accept if there was a rat there because that could be very alarming as well. No one that I've talked to so far felt as if they had any power to change the situation. And many of us feel trapped in our jobs for financial reasons. And so we must continue to internalize the misery around us. I had a job a few years ago, definitely the worst job I've ever had. And it literally made me sick. I mean, and I mean that literally horrible nonstop stomach pain. There were a lot of issues at play on a physical level. My doctor treated all of those. But six months later, after a few rounds of antibiotics, a new thyroid medicine, a series of elimination diets, tons of testing, my doctor finally asked, how does your job make you feel? And it all came out. I, I hated it. I felt trapped because I was supporting my whole family. My boss was a bully. The creative director was a sociopath. She would throw me under the bus and for any time she didn't get her own way. I saw so much cruelty at work on a regular basis, which was very triggering for me because it was so reminiscent of my abusive childhood, of tiptoeing around, walking on eggshells, of being afraid of the next mood swing or the next freak out. And much like my childhood, I felt trapped in this situation. I did not have the financial freedom to go. In two years, I hadn't taken a single full day off of work. That was supposed to be okay because we were allegedly working on an important mission. How many of you have been tricked into sacrificing your own rights, your own life, your own happiness because of some, quote, important mission that your employer is on? We were selling clothing. We were a clothing brand. We were a retailer. But allegedly, there was a mission behind selling these clothes. And I accepted this lie that we were on a mission because it was the only thing that allowed me to shoulder the stress and anxiety of it all. But over time, as I realized there was no mission, the mission was making money, just like every other job I'd had. And here I was sacrificing everything. Literally in my wedding dress, working because my boss wouldn't leave me alone. And she knew that I was getting married that day. I mean, that loyalty, that hard work that I was putting in was not going to be reciprocated. And I'm telling you this as someone who has wasted too much of my time, my talent, and my health on a bad job. Your job is never more important than you. Thank you, Susan, and our other anonymous caller for sharing your stories. And I hope this is inspiring more of you to send your stories my way because this, this is so important to me. <laughs> I want to hear from all of you. All right. Well, let's jump right into my interview with Shelby. I'm so excited for you to meet her. 
today I'm being joined by Shelby, uh, who I know is a Pittsburghian, a Pittsburgher, somehow adjacently related to Pittsburgh, like a lot of people in the close horse community. And I was connected with Shelby by Old Flame Mending. And what's awesome about Shelby is I thought we were going to talk about like reselling, which we are, but then it turned out that Shelby has this other very cool, very activist background. I can't wait to talk about it. So Shelby, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? Yeah, sure. Thanks so much for having me, Amanda. I'm so excited. I Yes, I do live in Pittsburgh, and I have a side business uh, called See Shelby Boutique, where I try to save as many garments as possible from the landfill. I do that through a few different ways. Um, obviously, I love to thrift. I want to take liquidated goods and get them to people who can actually find value in them. And then I also, as you mentioned, through Old Flame Mending, recently started a project called the Revitalized Collection, where I am taking vintage and damaged goods um, and using their professional expertise to bring them back to life. I love that so much because I, I mean, we're going to get into this later, but I know a lot of these returns just need a little bit of zhuzhing to be back Mm -hmm. to perfection, but a lot of times they just end up getting trashed. So that makes me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) So, okay. Well, as I mentioned, uh, I already like spoiled the whole episode, but when the girls from Old Flame Mending connected me with Shelby, we thought we were going to talk about, or at least I thought we were going to talk about like this, this project you're working on. But then you and I started going down a whole other rabbit hole that I was so excited about because when this episode comes out, it will be May, which is labor month. And yep. it was like, you were just sent to me by fate. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, so why don't you get it started by talking about your activism in college? Yeah, definitely. So super high level. I, during college, was very involved with a labor activism group called United Students Against Sweatshops. Uh, We always call it USAS for short. So you might, you know, hear me just call it USAS. So it's not as long throughout this. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of got involved with it by chance, but it truly just completely changed my life. Um, I had always been passionate about human rights ever since I really started learning as a kid about human rights abuses around the world and just generally over history and wanted to find a way to get further involved. I had done things like, you know, Amnesty International during high school and things of that sort. But when I started at college, my first semester at Penn State, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in terms of my free time with activism. And I honestly did not know much about sweatshops. Like I think I knew they existed, of course, like I had heard of sweatshops, but it just seemed such like a faraway concept to me. But really what happened is I just went to the involvement fair, like the first week of school, and I happened to come across a booth for USAS. And they were like, yeah, you seem, you know, really passionate about human rights. Um, Have you ever heard about sweatshops? Do you know about the abuses that are happening in the clothing industry and the clothes we all wear? And I was like, no, but I'd like to learn more. And they were awesome. And I learned eventually very skilled at, you know, organizing me and other folks to get involved. And really what inspired me to continue to show up to meetings and learn more and really eventually turned into an anti-sweatshop activist 
was the fact that they had real results, which I can definitely give some background on too. But that's really how I first heard about this and really what changed my life into getting into um, anti-sweatshop activism. What was going on specifically that were sort of like the headlines of the things that you were working on with USAS? USAS started with just some students across the country who started learning about what was going on and saying, hey, what can I do about this? Um, They realized that in order to make real change in the garment industry as a consumer, you know, I know, and this is hard to say it this way, because I know in your podcast, you talk a lot. I truly believe this too, that, you know, as a consumer, you know, we need to make uh, you know, change with our buying power, but they mm-hmm. realized that it wasn't happening fast enough. If they themselves, you know, just a few folks here that happened to know about what was going on, decided not to buy from a particular brand because they knew that they had sweatshops um, in their supply chain. So they realized, hey, we're students at this university, we're paying consumers here, and the the universities they buy so much. Uh, collegiate apparel. So just think like any sort of um, clothes that have the university logo or whenever there's special football games and, you know, everyone has matching t-shirts, like it just goes on and on and on. So they were actually a huge consumer to these brands. I can't even imagine. I mean, just think like you see people wearing like collegiate clothing all over the place. People, like it's not just like, I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm sure anybody listening is like, oh yeah, you're right. Uh, it's not just people in college wearing these clothes. Yeah, it's the alumni and so many other people. Yeah, children. You know, it's like a major gift. I feel like like it is a huge business. Yes, definitely, it it really is. And so, what these students realized was, you know, if the colleges are purchasing so many clothes from these brands. If they were to put pressure on the brands to actually respect their workers and not have sweatshop conditions, which we can definitely talk more about what that means, that they could influence their universities, the students, to make real change. Um, So in 1997, USAS really began. Um, It is the nation's largest student-led direct action campaign organization. Uh, Just some background on it that they define sweatshops super broadly. So, you know, I I feel like when a lot of people think of sweatshops, they think of, you know, the people in garment factories who, you know, which of course is super common in the industry, you know, making poverty wages, terrible conditions, sometimes, you know, dying, uh, making those clothes. But you also have to think about all the other people in the supply chain, um, who also may be facing different types of abuses in the workplace. Um, so I really liked that about the organization. You know, a lot of people think that the abuse and exploitation of workers across the world is something that just happened as fast fashion came up, right? Like it's like a new problem for the 21st century. But actually, I mean, as you pointed out, this has been going back even before the 90s, mm-hmm. definitely in the 80s, probably in the 70s to a certain extent too. I mean, I, I'm i totally blanking on the name right now, but in a very early episode, I talked about a, another college student who made a massive difference uh, with Nike yep. by literally going to, I think, Vietnam. I'm not 100%. I'm like blanking on all the details right now, but and trying to live off of the kind of wages that workers there were making and writing about it. And 
that was like the 80s, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Like the abuse of workers overseas has been going on since clothing shifted out of the United States. And to be fair, it wasn't always great even when clothing was made domestically until unions formed to protect those workers. Right. But now it's I mean it's I think it's probably gotten worse. I think that COVID has made it like there's the workers have literally no leverage at this point at all. They barely had any before, but now it's completely gone. So I think the situation probably has reached a critical mass, mm-hmm. but it's nothing new. Right. Right. Exactly. And, you know, I really think that it is strange almost to think about. We've had so much opportunity in really centuries, but particularly, I, I know you mentioned in a previous episode about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory disaster that happened in New York City that was back in 1911. I always think about, mm-hmm. you know, that before uh, the Rana Plaza factory collapsed, which I also did some activism about during during college as part of USAS. That was the deadliest incident in garment history. And that was in 1911, right? You know, and as you said, there were a lot um, you know, of changes that were super important in changing the conditions for workers that happened out of that. For example, that, you know, led to a lot of reforms in the U.S., uh, such as p- fire prevention legislation, factory inspection laws. Uh, it also uh, started the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, which was huge in the U.S. in the garment industry for a long time. Um, you know, but yeah, instead of making further progress in worker safety during that time, um, you know, look at where we are. I think it's a huge tragedy. I mean, there could have been so much innovation on ways to make clothing uh, that incorporated worker safety, also considered aspects of, you know, the environment during production. I mean, but look where we are. And that is, you know, something I am so sad about, uh, but also has mm-hmm. always inspired me to try to take action against. Yeah. I mean, it is sort of like, man, when you think about it that way, that they had all this time to make it better and all that happened is it got worse. And it's really been because the garment industry itself has sort of colonized all these other countries that have a lot less regulation around around working conditions, wages, et cetera. And so they've exploited that opportunity rather than revisiting how they were doing things in the first place. And that is such a bummer. Like we could be in a situation where right now, this sounds wild to me. We're literally robots so clothing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. I mean, there probably – it would turn out, though, that the factory that built the robots that sewed the clothes actually was like those people were being paid pennies and working in terrible, like, conditions. I mean, it's 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 so frustrating, you know, and I, something I've been thinking about a lot lately. There's just this, like, fundamental flaw in human nature that makes greed always more important than – ethics. And I'm like, how, how do we fix this? Because mm-hmm. I, I feel like for a long time, the only people who were really talking about all the terrible things that garment workers and really workers who manufacture anything for us are going through, the only people who were ever talking about that were like college students and some activists here and there. And it was just not like, when are there going to be television shows about that? Like, I would love John Oliver to do an episode about yeah. garbage rights. Like, how do we get this information into the mainstream? Because it's really horrifying. And, like, here and there, 
something will bubble up for a little bit. I know there were a lot of issues in Apple factories a few years ago with like suicides. And that was mm-hmm. around for a yeah. while, though people still went out and brought, bought brand new iPhones and AirPods. Uh, there was, God, this was like the late 90s, early aughts. Uh, my husband and I talk about this one all the time because periodically at the thrift store out here, we will find a Kathy Lee Gifford garment like from her clothing line that she did I think with Walmart and it came mm-hmm. out that like children were literally working in the factories making these Kathy Lee clothes and that was like a hot topic for a while but the the vibe out there is like well if it's not children making our clothes and we're pretty sure we don't know we know that they aren't then like who cares adults you know like we have this very western idea that the people working in those factories could just go get another better job and well, you and I know that's not true. Right. Yeah. And I, just to that point, I think that's really one of the ways that companies are able to kind of, I guess, cover what's going on to consumers by just separating them away from the people who are really involved in making their clothing, clothing and really any goods at all. Um, so far away. But that's part of what I think was so important uh, and is important to activism around what's going on in the fashion industry right now is that, you know, creating connections with the workers themselves. And that was part of the work that I did in USAS um, was, you know, we weren't just some, you know, people over here in the US, like obviously in the world, just very fortunate and privileged, like we're at college, you know, um, you know, finding something out and trying to think what we think is what people want and need somewhere else in the world that are, you know, experiencing, you know, terrible hardships and abuse. We actually were working directly with those workers. And I think that's super important during the whole process of activism in general. Um, But yeah, I also really appreciate you bringing out, yeah, it's terrible to think of the fact that this has been, you know, being brought to light for so long. It's not the top news story for sure, even though it's horrific what has been going on. So how do we make more awareness about what's going on for one? But then what is actually going to make any sort of change with these brands? Um, I think it's kind of twofold. Um, high level. And one side of it, I think is, you know, consumers really taking action around it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because at the end of the day, I know you talk about that, you know, brands react and companies react on money, right on profits. And, um, you know, it's not necessarily the ethics of those brands that are going to make changes, but it's going to be to be able to continue to grow their business. But I personally believe uh, that if brands were to invest in the safety and dignity, which I think is super important of those in their supply chain, uh, by leveraging their businesses with the entities that employ those people to so think, you know, the the factories that produce the clothing, the different places where the raw materials are are being cultivated, that they can use their leverage to make sure that they're purchasing their needs in the supply chain from people who are actually getting treated well. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, it might have to take a proportion of their profits to invest more in the production uh, of the supply chain of their goods, but that investment would pay off, I believe. I think that's super key, that if they were actually to try this, 
um, you know, it would actually create a, a better business opportunity. For sure. Like you would want to spend your money with them. Yeah. And like, I think it's important to remind everyone who's listening that yes, like Shelby said, it would take, it would take some money to kind of rework their supply chain and, you know, rework factories, change up who they're partnering with. But ultimately that cost is actually not that much. The, there's been a lot of analysis into what would have to happen on the consumer end for us in order for all the people making our clothes. And that includes the entire process, like making the fabric, growing the cotton, everything mm-hmm. to be paid a living wage and work in safe work environments. And it would at most, and this is like the most extreme version of it, add $1 to the price of everything we buy. Yep. yep. I mean, you the way the, the few times, I mean, I will say that I feel like rarely do any of these companies actually address any conversation about this publicly. It's like, it's like they just don't even want to start engaging with it, I think, because it implies some level of guilt, I guess. Uh, but, you know, the, the common sort of retort, the comeback that you'll hear when you start talking about improving conditions is like, well, Prices are going to go up for consumers. You'll have to say goodbye to being able to afford to buy clothes. And it's like, actually, when you read that, you're like, oh, like a dollar? Well, I don't need to be buying a hundred new clothes a year anyway. So, right. but even if I did, that would only be $100 more that I was spending on clothing. And I think there's a lot of fear mongering about it. Like, oh, well, you know, you must be really classist and privileged that you think it's okay to raise the price of clothes. And I'm like, once again, it's a few cents to a dollar. Like it's not going to change anybody here's lives one way or another, but it would make a massive difference for the people working in those factories. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not just, again, you know, high privileged people that would be able to, you know, buy, you know, some sort of very specific expensive clothing. It's like all of the clothes would be able to still be affordable, but brands wouldn't have to, you know, invest a huge amount just to make, make sure people don't die in their factories, you know, make sure people are making, you know, a decent wage that they can live a dignified life. Um, you know, I, I just think it's sickening and that's not even, um, you know, the best word. I don't know the right word for (laughs) the fact that people have to die or, you know, be forced to have an abortion, uh, or, um, you know, have, terrible, terrible conditions just to make a product, like, and specifically, like, for today's talk, like, a piece of clothing. Like, how is that how things are, you know? Like, that is just so sick to me. It's, I mean, that's the, that's getting down to brass tacks. That's what it really is here. And I think that it's never spoken about as bluntly as that, and and it needs to be, that why would we ever do you really need an iPhone, for example, if you know that's what's happening, that people are losing their liberty, their health, mm-hmm. their mental health? Yeah. You know, it's it's not. It's not okay. And it it frustrates me that it's so frequently not talked about. Like, it's just not out there. I think people are like, I don't want to feel guilty about what I buy. And it's like, no, get rid of the guilt and take action. Be angry. Mm-hmm. Be angry that this is the option you have. Exactly. <laughs> you know, that's the problem. And I do think, yeah, it's like what we need to do is reach a critical mass 
where there are so like such a massive group of people, like many, like millions of people involved in this movement to push brands to change. Because what happens there is like the pressure that's coming from us externally via like protest and, you know, emails, phone calls, all of that stuff makes them aware of why we're not giving them our money anymore. And then we're withholding the money and they see a massive difference. And on top of that, the other thing that will always motivate companies begrudgingly is the law. And if there were enough of us doing all of that and pushing our elected representatives for some really clear change around this, we would see a shift. But it's it's just like it has to be more and more people. Like we need to tell everyone we know. And maybe maybe the tactic is to be like, hey, uh, did you know that to like get this iPhone in your hand, uh, someone worked like 14 hours a day and was forced to get an abortion and had health problems from sitting still and breathed in chemicals and like, oh, well, no, I didn't know that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think it's, that's exactly what needs to happen is direct person to person conversations. I mean, it really starts, you know, from the ground up in that way. I remember whenever I was doing activism, just, you know, on my campus at Penn State, like, you know, just talking to different student groups, anyone from, you know, like the fraternities and sororities to, you know, like I remember the Paranormal Research Society signed on our coalition, like wow. all of different groups. Like, <laughs> yeah, the average person doesn't necessarily know what's going on, but whenever you talk to them as another like real person that is explaining what's happening, that's what really moves people. Um, you know, it's not just you know some distant idea somewhere else around the world. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I. Sometimes I think, I mean, this would be like wasting paper, I guess, to a certain extent, and I don't know how you would pull it off, but I always think it would be so incredible to go into, like, go into a Nike store and put a hang tang on every garment that was like, you know, the person who made this made 10 cents, or the person who made this was actually a Uyghur Muslim, you know, being forced to work and being held captive. Like, imagine getting the information right there in people's faces. You would go to jail if you went to that. But uh, it's something that I think about, like taking more extreme, not like dangerous tactics, but just more like obvious out there, more than just social media, more than just making a podcast, like getting out there in front of people and, you know, reaching them, like people you don't normally get to meet. You know, I remember first learning about the Uyghur Muslims outside a health food store. (laughs) Yeah, someone just came up and started talking to me about it. And I was like, wait, what? You know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Actually, exactly what you're talking about was a huge part of what I did uh, during college. And I actually, um, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but I ended up training students after college on how to do these campaigns on their own campuses. Um, But actions like you talked about were part of that, Um, specifically, um, you know, at colleges, we did a lot of actions at the bookstore and we would you know, mm. educate the people who were right there, whether it's with a megaphone or, um, you know, I know it was a common action to actually like leave notes um, in the clothing about, you know, hey, this was me in this sweatshop. Um, did you <laughs> know this? That. Um, you know, uh, having a protest there. Also, um, you know, during our end death traps campaign, which was around the Rana Plaza collapse, 
a factory collapse, we did things like die-ins at, like, I remember we did one um, at, at the Ann Taylor store in DC. It was more of like a national use us um, gathering where, you know, Ann Taylor produces a lot of their clothing in Bangladesh where this factory collapse occurred. So we were raising awareness, you know, not only at Ann Taylor, but the people who were shopping there, but we were just walking in. And then all of a sudden, you know, we all fell to the floor, uh, representing all the lives lost, you know, to the factory workers that are producing clothing in Bangladesh, and specifically, you know, in part due to Ann Taylor. Um, You know, that's just the way that these sort of things actually get awareness. Like, I'm sure the people who are in that store, I would hope, still remember that, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, did you talk to people while you were there? Yeah, I personally, I don't think that I did, but um, people stayed and watched what was happening. And uh, we were talking with the store manager And we actually had a letter that was delivered um, with our request. We were asking Ann Taylor to sign on to the Accord for Fire and Building Safety in Bangladesh, which was actually a binding agreement for brands to make changes in their supply chain and their factories in Bangladesh that would include safety uh, measurements that need to be put in place. So I'm sure the people mm-hmm. who were in the store beforehand, they maybe didn't know about that. Like may- it was in the news for once about the Rana Plaza factory collapse around that time, but they probably didn't know that the clothes that they were buying from Ann Taylor uh, necessarily were made in that region. And they probably didn't know that Ann Taylor had the chance to sign on to something that would actually improve the lives of those people who were making the clothes that they were buying. So yeah, we did educate them, um, you know, and I think that's an important aspect of activism. Absolutely. I think it's really about reaching other people. I mean, you know, we talk about voting with your dollar and that being impactful, it's not very impactful if it's just a couple hundred people. It's really got to be millions of people. I mean, I would, yep. I would be, even if it was like 100,000 people, I'd be like, all right, we're, we're getting there. Uh, but it needs to be a massive effort. And it really is all about all of us sharing our information with the people around us and getting them, opening their eyes. Because like, like I was saying earlier, like most people don't know this stuff. It's a secret for a reason. Exactly, exactly. And I think what's important too, um, you know, there are discussions that are had about, you know, oh, well, I don't have the time to like be an activist, um, you know, and like do one of those actions. But there are lots of different things that are super helpful in making that change. And it could be as simple as having a conversation with your neighbor <clears throat> about what's going on. That's right. Or yeah, 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 your family members. And then it's kind of like a domino effect from there. You know, then those people are like, wow, you know, d- what I learned the other day, like I had no idea this is so messed up. Um, you know, and they can tell other folks, like it doesn't have to be something that costs, you know, a lot of time or money, if, of course, to get involved in. Um, and one of the things that I learned during my time in activism and really just realizing this changed my life was that, um, you know, when people really do come together, like you said, on a larger scale, it is possible to make significant change. Like, for example, um, when I was in college, the first campaign that I worked on was the Bad Adidas campaign, like Bad Adidas. Mm. Um, and basically what was going on there was this was an instance that actually it was a law that was in place, but the but it, the brand was not 
following it. So students, you know, we used our leverage to have Adidas pay $1.8 million in legally mandated severance pay to its workers at a factory in Indonesia called PT Keyzone. Uh, basically what happened there was they shuttered just suddenly this factory. Um, you know, and imagine, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you're a worker at this factory, probably, you know, not already, you know, having the best conditions or, you know, you're not making a living wage. Um, but all of a sudden, just because the brand's like, oh, maybe in this other locations such as Bangladesh, for example, we can make even more of a profit and and pay the factories even less and invest in even less in the workers and the garments being made. You know, we're going to close this factory. And all of a sudden, you know, those workers in Indonesia were not able to send their kids to school, not able to buy groceries, you know, just having to figure out their lives. And so what happened is we were working with those workers as students across the country and myself at Penn State to use our leverage as student consumers at our university, to use the university's leverage, as we mentioned before, you know, as a huge purchaser of collegiate clothing, in this case from Adidas, um, to actually get them to make that change and actually respect the workers and pay them that much money. Um, Yeah, and it was... I I can't even explain how amazing it felt to actually see that happen. You know, we used basically what is called the escalation model um, by different actions and, you know, meetings with the university administrations. And this is kind of like a network, again, USAS was and still is a network across the country of chapters. They call them actually locals to be kind of using the union league uh, lingo um, across the country to work together on this larger campaign. So it wasn't like myself and my group at Penn State being isolated, right? Like it was mm-hmm. all these folks across the country getting our universities to come together. They actually cut their contracts or suspended their contracts with Adidas until they made this change. And then so Adidas finally paid attention, right? You know, it wasn't one person alone. It was all of these people and all of these universities representing so many consumers and therefore such a huge price tag um, for Adidas that mm-hmm. they paid attention and made that change. And at the end of the day, it was just people coming together, um, you know, telling the stories of what's actually happening behind the clothes that they're wearing. I love that so much. That makes me, I just love hearing about success stories. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and that like the idea, for example, with uh, a factory like, or not a factory, but a company like Adidas, sort of like abandoning a factory and moving to another country or region. This happens so often. I know there's been an ongoing case with Uniqlo for the same exact thing. And the issue is that in your town, if you work at this factory and it goes away, there aren't other jobs there. Like another brand doesn't generally swoop into that factory unless that factory starts cutting costs even more to become more appealing. And in that case, that really trickles down to the workers being paid less for the same work if they're lucky enough to get work at all. And this happens so often. Like the power when it comes to manufacturing clothes, you know, phones, all the stuff we buy. The factory has none of the power. All of that power belongs to the retailer or the brand. Yep. Exactly. They can they 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 ha- they control the terms, right? They can say, "Hey, listen, uh, 
we could move this to Bangladesh and pay half as much, or you can uh, make it for us for half the price. And if the factory says no, it's like, okay, peace, we're going to Bangladesh. Right, exactly. A lot of times, you know, when people start learning about you know, the the way that this industry is done, that it's not necessarily the brands that own the factories, that there's like a factory owner, for example, they're like, oh, well, why doesn't the factory owner just, you know, pay the workers a living wage and invest in making their factory safe? Well, it's like, yeah, because their customers are the brands. And if the brands are saying mm-hmm. we're only going to pay this much, you know, that factory owner is a person with a livelihood too, you know, like they have to like, keep their family fed and so forth. And, you know, it's, it's that pressure from the brands that create these conditions, not the the factories. Yeah. And it's, it's the brands that can actually make the change. Totally, totally. So I was, I think we should talk about Rana Plaza and the work you did around that. But first, like, let's talk about what it was, because this is a perfect example of all the things that can go wrong. Um, you know, another thing is that there's a lot of government corruption around these kind of factory environments and the regulation of them, like in their in the countries where this is happening, where, you know, these like politicians, people in the community are really excited to have a factory come in because, you know, there's this idea that everyone's going to get rich off of it. And so often you know, the government itself will look the other way on these things as well. It's sort of like every, it's just like a perfect storm of everything bad happening all at once. And Rana Plaza is the most extreme version of it. Yeah. Yeah. You're completely correct there. So basically what happened was again, Bangladesh, it's one of the largest producers of apparel in the world. um, And also some of the worst conditions occur there for mm-hmm. workers. Um, and that kind of came to, you know, a tipping point in April 2013 uh, when I was in college. And what happened was in the Dhaka district of Bangladesh, uh, there was an eight-story commercial building, Rana Plaza, and it collapsed. And what's key about this is it wasn't just something, like, that randomly happened. Um, it was known that the factory was unsafe. Mm -hmm. There were agencies that went into the factory and determined there were cracks in the building, um, you know, that, hey, like it's in danger of falling. And workers were still mandated to come and produce the clothes that were there. And this is something that is, again, common in the industry. And also, you know, what is common is for people to actually be locked in to the factory. So it's very Mm -hmm. hard for them to escape. Um, So yeah, the factory collapsed. Over 1,100 people died. Um, Over 2,500 people were also injured from the building uh, collapsing. And I mean, these are mostly young women. Just think about people losing their limbs. There were a ton of orphans that were as a result of this. I mean, it was horrific. This was the worst incident in the history of the garment industry. And again, just back to my point before, you know, the one that was considered the worst and most tragic previously was about a century before. And that was that triangle shirtwaist factory. So that is so telling. Um, Yeah, the building itself, you know, had several different clothing factories. It did have a bank, uh, apartments, some shops. But really, it was the building owners that ignored the warnings. 
um, because they could not just shut down. Otherwise, you know, it would be likely that the brands themselves would pull out of that factory, you know. Mm -hmm, So basically, mm -hmm. there was a decision by the managers to send workers back into the factories, again, due to the pressure to complete orders on time. Um, You know, they say that partial responsibility for this disaster um, was from the short production deadlines that are very common in the fast fashion industry Mm -hmm. by buyers, the brands themselves that are having the clothing being made at the factory. And it wasn't completely clear what all brands were, were in these factories. Um, a lot of it had to be found by what was found, found in the rubble for different clothing tags. Um, I do know I, I found the clean clothes campaign, which is a great organization. They identified at least 29 global brands, um, that had current orders, uh, with at least one of those five factories that were in the Rana Plaza building. And that include Benetton, Marsh, mm-hmm. Cato Fashions, the Children's Place. I know I personally did actions around the Children's Place after this. You know what? I was just going to say, anytime there's something bad going on, the Children's Place is a part of it. Yeah. It's got to be just like the most garbage company. I know. I know. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> There were uh, several others. I know other ones that people probably know are like Joe Fresh, Primark. But yeah, again, at the end of the day, there were a lot of different clothing brands there. Um, and this is just one example of a building where this these conditions are common, but it, this tragedy actually happened. It, it was horrific. Yeah. And there was just so, uh, it was just like everything bad that happens happened at the same mm-hmm. time. So that building was only approved by local building authorities. I'm, I want to say to be two floors, but the people who owned it just kept adding floors until it got to eight stories. And, you know, a building inspector came in and was like, there are all these cracks. You need to evacuate the building. So the businesses on the first floor and the apartments were evacuated and no one was living there. So this could have been even more horrific. But like you said, all the garment workers were still required to come into work because these crazy deadlines. And I've been thinking a lot about that because the deadlines that these factories work under are wild. They seem to be always unachievable. But when you're back, say, in the United States, in the buying office, placing those orders, you're not seeing, you don't see the trajectory between, I need to move this order up two weeks so that I can do this marketing story or meet my receipt plan or make some executive happy. You're not seeing it that way. But what you're really doing is endangering people and making their lives more miserable in the best case scenario, you know, I would expect that almost no one working in the corporate level is aware of that. Maybe people who work in production who are like, I'm experienced in this area. I know there's no way a factory can turn this around in two weeks. Um, These kinds of demands push, you know, like during COVID, they're uh, preventing social distancing. It pushes people to work in broken buildings like in in the Rana Plaza. It leads to a lot more outsourcing or I guess like subcontracting of these production orders. So like, you know, you might be like, okay, well now they want this two weeks earlier. Even if we have everybody in the factory working 24 hours a day, we're not going to get there. So we're going to give half of this order to someone else. And at that point, the retailer doesn't even know who that other subcontractor is. You know, it's like, it can be anyone, anywhere working, working under any conditions. And so the time, the timeline thing is not something we talk in, about enough, but it is just as bad for workers as 
the low wages that they're paid. So for Rana Plaza, you, you know, you did the die-ins. What came out of that? Like, what was the result of all the activism? Because I'll say, I feel like Rana Plaza got a little bit of a tiny, tiny bit of press coverage. I feel like it was, it came and it was gone so fast and no one ever talked about it again. And so unless you're really in the know, you've never heard of it. Uh, How were you able to see change there? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. So it's actually a larger answer than you might think. So um, (laughs) yeah, there was a whole second scandal that went on during this time. So as I mentioned before, Uh, There was an accord on fire and building safety in Bangladesh. So that was an initiative that came after this tragedy occurred, where there were actually, Mm -hmm. um, you know, different stipulations that would be put in place if a brand signed on. Um, But some things that were super important as components to it, you know, it was developed jointly by companies, Bangladeshi and global unions and labor right NGOs. It was governed jointly by companies and their worker representatives. There were independent inspections and remediation plans every nine months. And the the independent inspections part is super important. Um, A very common thing that people probably have no no idea about is that a lot of monitoring organizations aren't really independent. There are some, like, for Mm -hmm. example, I did uh, some campaigns around during college a company called Fair Labor Association, the FLA, um, mm-hmm. which a lot of brands are affiliated with, and it's actually run by the brands themselves. Like, can you imagine? Like, I know. Yeah. Can you imagine <laughs> the brands like actually like taking any significant steps against themselves? Like, no. And yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> what actually happens? Like, I know in that case, like I knew a lot more about that one that. Um, you know, they would even tell brands in, in advance, like when they're coming. So like, yeah, things yep. would be all put perfectly in place. Like it would appear like, you know, there are good conditions. Like, um, they would even have sometimes like specific workers, like already like pulled out and prepped to like talk to the inspectors. Like it was totally, mm-hmm. totally not an actual like unbiased inspection, but this accord would include true independent inspections. Like there's an organization that I also did campaigns with um, around called the Worker Rights Consortium, which I'm a huge fan of. We just called it the WRC. Mm-hmm. And that's an example of an independent monitoring agency where none of those things happen. Um, yeah. So with this accord, independent inspections, they would actually have remediation around them every nine months. It was planned. There are contractual commitments to fund necessary safety renovations and continue to pay for them by the brands. It protects the rights of workers to refuse dangerous work. Because again, as you mentioned, with the Rana Plaza collapse, they couldn't refuse, right? Like they were like mandated to come to work, even though it was unsafe um, and refused to enter a dangerous building. And there were also legally binding enforceable contracts that puts power in the hands of workers and holds those companies accountable through the courts. So it wasn't just, you know, these vague, you know, things that the companies had to do. Like there were actual, um, you know, steps in place to hold them accountable. So that accord, you know, was great. And that was one of the things that came directly out of the activism from the Rana Plaza factory collapse. And there were several brands that actually did sign on to it. So those brands that you might know that that did sign on to the Good Accord uh, included American Eagle, Fruit of the Loom, 
Knights Apparel, Cherokee, PBH, and those brands include like Calvin Klein, Joe Fresh, Sean John, Puma, Tommy Hilfiger, Van Heusen, Izod, etc. And actually, there were about 1,600 factories. And this is as of a report I saw on their website from Q1 of this year. 1,653 factories that are covered by the Accord. Uh, 38,000 total and initial inspections of factories. 93%. Yeah, yeah. Like this was making like some real change. 93% of initial remediation progress across those covered factories. So like the change is actually happening. And 1.8 million workers were trained on workplace safety through a safety and, uh, safety and health complaints mechanism that was set up. And there actually were about 1,400 complaints. So those were like actual situations that workers were able to, without fear, uh, speak up for themselves and actually, you know, demand a change to an unsafe workplace. Um, so yeah, like it's been really great. It's a step, you know, like there's still, um, you know, terrible conditions going on throughout Bangladesh, throughout, um, you know, the fast fashion supply chain, but there were real changes that put in, that were put in place. But I do want to mention too, like, here's like the weird part of the story is that, a lot of the brands that pressure was put on by activism during this time, they created their own separate agreement. It was called the Alliance for Bangladesh Worker Safety. So like the good one I already mentioned, right? It had all of these, you know, mechanisms in place to actually hold brands accountable. They designed their own that was like so much more loose. Um, mm-hmm. basically it was designed and run entirely by those corporations. There was no involvement from worker representatives. Um, Ugh. the inspections against were not independent. They remained completely under the control of the apparel companies. There was no commitment as part of it to provide any funding for renovations or repairs. Um, any of the funding that did happen was actually voluntary and, you know, this approach has consistently failed in the past. Again, you know, there's nothing like holding the brands accountable. Um, the workers were not protected from being forced to enter and remain in a dangerous building, which obviously was the cause of the Rana Plaza factory collapse. And the agreement was just generally not enforceable. Um, you know, workers can't report the problems to companies. There was no, because there was no independent body, like they would be at risk of, you know, Um, retaliation by the companies and yeah I just think that's such a crazy part of this story that um you know not only were a lot of these brands that signed on I can tell you an example of some of them to the good accord like they created their own fake accord and yeah Uh. so the alliance some of the brands that did that were walmart the children's place. Um, of, course. of course. As soon as you hear the children's place is involved, you can assume it is terrible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the Gap, JCPenney, Kohl's, Macy's, Nordstrom, Sears, Target, VF Corporation, and some of their brands include Supreme, The North Face, Vans, Timberland, Kipling, Jansport, and Dickies. So, like, yeah, there were, I do have to say, like, supposedly there were different, um, you know, actions that were taken from the alliance, but it was so much less, it seems, of an actual change, um, you know, than anything that was concrete, like the accord was put in place. 
I mean, this is so typical. Um, you know, if you go onto any of these brands, or any brands like sort of social responsibility, corporate responsibility page, they'll always speak to something like this. And it, and and you as a customer, if you don't know better, are like, oh, great, okay, so Children's Place is like really taking care of its mm-hmm. workers, right? Um, which I can't even say without sneering because <laughs> you know they are every t- pay up, you name it, Children's Place is evolved, but um. I uh, have noticed as I've dug more and more into this, because even on my side as a buyer, you know, when you talk to different vendors and brands that you want to onboard and you ask them, I'm I'm telling you the most uncomfortable question to always ask is like, tell me about, you know, your working conditions, like what's your supply chain, you know, because if you're a good buyer, you're going to ask that stuff because you want to cover your own boss's ass, right? Like mm-hmm. You don't want to buy from, say, the children's place. And then like a month later, they're involved in something terrible. Um, but oftentimes you'll be fed language like, oh, well, we're part of the Alliance for Bangladesh Worker Safety or something. And you're like, great, <laughs> that's awesome. And it's sort of like its own version of greenwashing yeah. where it's actually like it doesn't mean much at all. I mean- you cannot have any industry inspecting itself and holding itself accountable. It just, it just doesn't make sense. Imagine if restaurants just, you know, inspected themselves. Yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> food being made here, and then you know, yeah, people like get like E. coli or something or salmonella yeah, exactly. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is the same thing. You can't. I mean. You, I don't want to inspect myself. You know what I mean? I want a third party to be very objective mm-hmm. about what I'm doing or not doing. And I, I find that this is so common. I mean, I see this kind, you know, these kinds of organizations being name dropped. I see phrases like family owned factory, which doesn't mean anything because most factories are family owned. Um, I see, Things like fair wages, that doesn't, that's not measurable. That doesn't mean anything. Um, even when I've, I've looked at a few sites where they're like, we always pay the nationally mandated minimum wage, also not, not good. Um, and so it's really hard as a customer to, to parse all this out, to see who's being genuine and who is trying to confuse you. I think we need it. We need a name for the kind of greenwashing about workers' rights. Someone needs to invent that name. Yeah, that would be that would be perfect. And yeah, <laughs> I can't even think of what it would be. But um, yeah, like I think that's super important, though. That uh, you you mentioned, like people can even try to buy ethically. You know, even there's issues with um, you know I learned about before about the fair trade so- certification and things like that. Like it doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means sometimes. You know? Yeah, it might. It's better probably. But there's not a lot of transparency there either. Exactly. Yeah. So people can try their best, um, you know, and like you said, maybe like they heard, oh, the Children's Place signed on to this alliance for worker safety, but they don't know necessarily what it really means and what's really happening to those people, even with the best intentions. It's it's so messed up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you eventually, you know, you were really involved in activism in school, but that led to a career for you. Yeah. Yeah. So... Another success story, and this actually is still tied back to USAS. So another success story of USAS was their part in founding the first living wage union-made apparel factory in brand, and that is called Alta Gracia. 
um, mm-hmm. Altagracia is in uh, Via Altagracia of Dominican Republic. And basically, it serves as a model of what is possible when universities, students, and a company, which happened to be Knights Apparel at the time, are committed to re- have respect for labor rights. They all work together. And basically, this was the first collegiate apparel company to actually have these high standards, which I can go further into. So the background from that, you know, they founded this factory back in 2010, and it is an option for universities to buy their collegiate apparel from. You know, obviously, we'd wish that all factories were living wage and respected the rights of workers. But unfortunately, at least at the time, you know, that I was doing this work, and I still believe today from the research that I did, this is the only option that, you know, does that. So USAS you know, didn't really have, from what I understand, when Solidarity Ignite, the organization ended up working for, was founded, they didn't have all of the capacity they needed to, like, constantly run campaigns around getting universities to buy living wage and made apparel like Altagracia. We worked with USAS, but it was basically like an offshoot of USAS. And we were, um, you know, very small grassroots nonprofit. And we did a couple of things. So we helped start student groups for, uh, you know, social justice campaigns like Alta Gracia um, all across the country where there were no, you know, active USAS groups in. And we, we especially focused on areas that, um, you know, traditionally maybe weren't so active in these sorts of things, like think, you know, the Midwest and the South. Um, and we help students get started. And yeah, we basically brought together labor and consumer groups to hold these corporations accountable and uphold dignified standards for human rights. And the key background to what we were doing is that, again, it's solidarity, not charity. And I think that's back to the point I mentioned earlier about, you know, it can't just be us, you know, privileged people, particularly over here in the United States, just like making up these campaigns for workers Mm -hmm. elsewhere. Like we're, again, working directly with them. And it was Solidarity Night uh, was also founded on this idea by a quote from Leela Watson, and I personally love it. It's that if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. I think that's so important. And I love just that. the idea yeah. that we're all impacted by these abuses that are happening throughout the world. Well, and it takes away that like white savior approach to it. Like, I'm just going to throw money at the problem or do you have some fundraising merch that I can buy to show my support? Like, no, get down here and let's work together on this. Exactly. Yes. So yeah, I got really involved with that. I was the executive director. Um, but basically that meant I did pretty much every sort of role. Um, I did have (laughs) some part-time folks that, um, you know, I helped uh, work underneath me. And then we did have people in the Dominican Republic that we would hire, um, you know, for on the ground work. So for example, not only did we start student groups at universities across the country and teach them how to run campaigns, like for example, you know, getting their universities to order a larger proportion of Alta Gracia apparel, or for example, getting their universities to be affiliated with the Worker Rights Consortium, the WRC. So that way, you know, there was an independent monitoring agency for the factories that produced the collegiate apparel at their at their college. Um, but we also 
had what we called solidarity immersion programs to the Dominican Republic to first of all, go to the Alta Gracia factory, meet the workers, hear their stories. Like they actually used to work in a sweatshop. And then that, that factory, I believe it was Nike that was in there. Uh, Previously it was shuttered similar to, you know, the Adidas story we talked about. And then this new factory that actually, you know, pays people a living wage. Um, it's represented by a democratic union. They face none of the abusive labor conditions that continue, you know, to plague people around the world um, and monitored by the WRC. We would take them there and actually hear about their stories, how their lives has changed, how the community itself in Via Alta Gracia changed. Like it's not just the people who work at these factories that, benefit from actually respecting workers' rights, but it's the whole entire community, right? Like there were new mm-hmm. small businesses started. The, the economy, you know, had been thriving compared to before. Um, and we would also meet with workers from all different other types of, you know, both fa- factories for clothing, but other industries. Um, you know, they included and these were people who they their ask, right? It wasn't them just, you know, taking their time to tell us these stories, but their ask was that we went, you know, back to the universities and helped make change. So that way their conditions, you know, would be able to hopefully be improved by these changes. And these workers included people from call centers, you know, think of the people <clears throat> that are typically on the on the phone whenever you need help anything from like your cable to, you know, product support, things like that. A lot of those folks are actually overseas. Um, Call center workers, shoe factory workers, um, you know, apparel workers, even for, um, I should mention as well, uh, we also would go to the border of Haiti sometimes to meet with Haitian workers And there was a Mm -hmm. story I was told by one of those Haitian workers on one of the trips I was there that they were making U.S. military uniforms in Haiti in some of the worst conditions. Like, that was crazy for me to think that that's what was happening. But now it makes, you know, sense. We met people who were making pens, uh, aloe vera plantation workers. And these folks, they would tell us about their experiences, you know, of abuse as anything from sexual harassment, death threats, and assassination attempts for trying to organize a union at their factory, mandatory overtime, poverty wages, of course. Um, It's very common to not get breaks, um, you know, at all, or very, very little breaks at these sorts of establishments. So it's very common, especially for women to get UTIs from having to, you know, like hold it in from going to the bathroom. Uh, can you imagine? It's crazy. It's crazy. It's so crazy to get a so you can get your college sweatshirt or your gosh yeah. the military clothing thing makes me so angry. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Like so, we would actually meet with these workers. But what was key is during the trip, um, we would teach the students that were on these on these trips how to organize, you know, not just be an activist and, you know, not that you shouldn't, you know, try to shout out on social media and things like that at brands, but actually organize a campaign at their local area, in these case universities, to help make a change. So we would teach them those skills so that way they were prepared to go back to their university and, you know, try to make some changes there. So my job was not only to recruit students, you know, organize these trips for educational purposes, but then after the students go back, I would help the students run those campaigns and teach them the things that I learned, you know, during college, 
you know, as an organizer and activist myself. So yeah, it was an amazing, an amazing time for me. That is so cool. I mean, that's like a dream job to me. I know it was really, really, really hard. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was, it was definitely the most demanding job that I've ever had, you know, a lot of like sleepless nights and, you know, high stress, but it, it was just awesome knowing that I was helping more people make more changes that were positive in the world around the garment industry. Um, And I could help, you know, just share some of my experiences that I learned that I was so fortunate that the people before me, like specifically from USAS taught me how to make these successes and changes, you know, so yeah, I I love doing it. Um, So why did you leave? Yeah, so I left. Okay, another part of this too is, um, so again, we were very grassroots. Um, You know, we had received a grant that paid for my salary. And, uh, you know, I would sometimes only know where my funding was coming from, like, like by the end, like a few months beforehand. But also, again, it was very demanding. Um, One of the ways to both recruit students to be in, you know, starting their campaign, get interested in this, but also um, to come on the trip was um, very, very, uh, I don't even know the right word. It was very grassroots, we'll just say. So for example, um, I flew to New Orleans where my, um, you know, the person who founded Solidary Ignite, my friend Rachel, I borrowed her car and traveled to universities through Louisiana, Texas, um, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, Missouri. I was in Tennessee. This is intense. This sounds exhausting. Mississippi. Yeah. And so like, not only was like, was I like on a road trip by myself for like weeks at a time, like doing like really hard work. And again, like most of these places we had no contacts. Like I was doing like cold outreach to professors and, in different, um, wow. you know, disciplines that were typically more um, willing to listen to these sorts of ideas. Um, I would have documentary showings that I would try to recruit people to attend about Alta Gracian sweatshops um, at universities. I would, um, you know, at some points, I actually, you know, separate from this trip, uh, we would have workers, you know, come over and we'd actually bring them to talk to students face to face. But a lot of different you know, tactics, I would like research what the student groups were that would maybe be sympathetic to this cause and reach out to them, you know, before I would arrive in their in their town. And I oftentimes would have to stay with people like I didn't know I did a lot of couch surfing. This is so stressful to me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like it was on one hand, like, like, it was like one of the craziest and, you know, most interesting experiences of my life so far. But I'm like, yeah, on the other end, it was like, also very exhausting and stressful. Like I know on like that this one particular trip I'm talking about now, like I did get sick mid trip. Um, and I, uh, I know, um, and I a couple of times, like last minute, couldn't figure out like someone that we like, kind of new with the organization to stay with. And I, at one point, I remember, I think it was the University of Kansas. <clears throat> I was there and I just didn't know where I was going to stay that night. And again, this is all because we didn't have a lot of funding, right? Like um, we were right. using as much of our funding as possible to just make sure people could attend the trips, could actually, you know, run these campaigns. Like we would, when we could provide scholarships for students that were passionate about it to attend 
a trip. And so like, I wasn't staying at like a hotel, you know, like I, one time I think I was able to stay at an Airbnb during the trip as kind of like a treat, you know, <laughs> like at someone's house. <laughs> um, and yeah, I stayed on the floor of a church in Kansas um, overnight. Like I like had like a sleeping bag and just like slept on the church floor, but was super kind. And I'm actually still Facebook friends with the woman who, who like was like, yeah, yeah, you can stay here um, at the church. So um, yeah, it was some interesting experiences. <laughs> um that were stressful another part of that trip that is again like kind of like funny looking back now but was very stressful and this was just part of road tripping to recruit for social justice you know was I remember I was driving through like rural Louisiana and I had to get gas and so I just you know I saw I was going to um Lafayette I believe and the next morning I knew I would be traveling after my meetings there to Texas. So I was like, I'll get gas now. I like pulled off at an exit and it was so rural. Like, I mean, they were selling, I guess it was like alligator eggs at this gas station. Like, I I don't know. Like it was like, (laughs) I had never experienced that before. Like, okay, like no judgment, but that's where I was. And I followed my GPS, like after I got gas, like, so that way I could get back on the highway. But for whatever reason, it had me turn one way instead of the way that I came. Like, I think it was like, they wanted, it wanted me to like make a turnaround anyhow. So it had me turn into this like residential development area and the, the roads were clearly like not maintained for a long time, if ever. And I thought there was a puddle there, like, um, you know, just a puddle, but it turned out like I decided to keep driving through it and it was like a swamp, like basically, like my car, like oh my god, wow. my car like <laughs> sank down. I opened the door and like stepped out, and I'm talking like I was like covered up, like way, like almost to like my waist, like in mud water. Like it was crazy. Like I was not getting out of there. <laughs> yeah, and so I mean, this is a whole story in itself, but it's just to demonstrate, like it was a little bit stressful sometimes, but. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. But a good part of that story too that I like to tell is so first of all, my phone was almost dead. And like I was like, oh my God, what am I gonna do? Thank God my grandparents had bought me AAA before I went on this trip. But um, yeah, you know, oh my goodness. Yeah, I tried to call AAA and again I'm covered in mud. Like I'm like freaking out. <laughs> I don't even know where I am. And this man comes out of um the one a house and he first of all he brings me water to kind of like wash off and like water to drink I call AAA they don't know how to get to where I am so he takes the phone and like you know explains to them how to get there they're like okay it should probably be like an hour or so I am um, he was like do you want to you know and then other people from his family came out um and they're like you can come inside like you know and rinse off like you know your legs in the bathtub like from the mud um, you can charge your phone and, you know, I was so, so, so grateful for this. And while I was talking to them, you know, waiting for the AAA person to come to help tow my car out of this swamp, um, we were talking and they, I was like, yeah, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And again, I'm in like rural Louisiana and the people, they're talking to me saying like, oh, we love the Steelers and like the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I'm like, really? Like, how did that come about? And, um, you know, they were like, yeah, we've only ever, we've never been to Pittsburgh. They, I think the one woman said the only other state they had been to was I think like, um, Mississippi or something like that. But, um, Uh so definitely not in Pennsylvania, but, uh, the one person said, 
yeah, like they're, I think they said their high school team was the same, like colors, like black and gold as, as the Steelers, and they would see them on TV. So they just decided that they love the Steelers. So it was like a cool little, you know, like thing that we got to have together. And we were, we had been Facebook friends. They told me they ran like a Cajun food truck, like at different local festivals and stuff. It was just, Again, like very stressful situation, but also like I'll have these memories forever, and I'm so grateful for yeah. people like that. Um, yeah, like that—that that is an example of my life during that time. <laughs> I mean, I love this story; it's so cute. <laughs> but yeah, so I loved this work. I loved, you know, making a difference. <clears throat> I did it for about a year or so, um, but. I I don't mind like talking publicly about it, but I do struggle with mental health. I have ever since I was a kid. Um, And it really took a toll on me like from this stress. I actually have OCD and, you know, suffer from periodic depression and Mm -hmm. anxiety and things like that. So anyhow, um, I just, I could not do it anymore. Um, So I I had to take a break eventually. And I went back into um, the tech industry after this. To be honest, I would have done the same thing. I mean, it's exhausting, right? Uh, and it's e- really easy to get burned out and just think, you know, you can only be caught in a swamp so many times. Exactly. You know? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, but what would your advice be for anyone listening who wants, you know, they want to make a difference. They want to campaign on behalf of workers' rights or the environmental impact or fast fashion or any of the other issues we've talked about today. What would you tell them to do? Yeah, I would tell them to, first of all, see if there are any local groups that of, you know, different larger organizations that they can get involved with. Or there's actually a lot of uh, different communities virtually they could get involved with to participate in activism, to learn more about this, to see how they can get involved one organization that I'm a huge fan of, I actually learned about it more recently, is Fashion Revolution. Their website is fashionrevolution.org. And they provide uh, both research and guides to get involved in activism across the whole supply chain. Like right now, I know they're doing a lot around even the raw materials. So like, again, mm-hmm. a lot of people just think about the folks that are cutting and sewing the garments. You know, there are the people who are with, you know, doing work around the raw materials as well. Um And yeah, they have resources to do easy virtual actions for just regular folks. Again, it doesn't have to take a lot of time um, or effort, but you can do as much as you can. But what's also cool, if there happens to be any, you know, like actual brands or retailers or other folks listening to this, um, they have resources for them as well to actually make change. Like if they, you know, are learning about this and like, hey, like I actually do want to make some changes, they can help. Um, Yeah, so super you know, really a big fan of them. Um, For anti-sweatshop campaigns specifically, of course, if you're in college, I would recommend you reaching out to USAS. I'm a huge Mm -hmm. fan of them. Obviously, they changed my life. Um, So reach out to USAS. And then if you're not, there are others too, like Clean Clothes Campaign is cool. The International Labor Rights Forum. And then again, there's an environmental aspect to all this too, that... Uh, you know, environmental impacts to the fast fashion industry. And if that is, you know, more of your passion, um, you know, some other groups to look into as well are like Greenpeace, Sierra Club, uh, the National Resources Defense Council and Green Action. So that would be my advice is to reach out to 
organizations and folks who are already doing this work, they can help educate you on how to, you know, be effective. And again, it's that community coming together that really makes the change. Absolutely. There's so much power in numbers. Thank you so much, Shelby. Shelby will be back in Sunday's episode, and I'm going to share the links to all of the organizations she talked about in the show notes. If you're interested in seeing what Shelby's up to with her resale business, you can go check her out on Instagram at cshelbybtq. Don't worry, I'm going to share that in the show notes, but she's doing some really cool stuff. And we're going to talk about that more in the next half of our conversation on Sunday. You know, we talked about the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, which killed about 146 workers, mostly women and girls. About one third of the total workers in that building that day died. And as Shelby mentioned, these workers were locked in the building. There was a belief on the part of management that these workers couldn't be trusted to work and not just wander around, goof off, or there's also a lot of concern that they might steal things. In fact, women had to leave the building to use the bathroom, so management began locking the steel exit doors to prevent the so-called interruption of work, and only the foreman had the key. Yes, these workers could not use the bathroom freely whenever they wanted. They had been dehumanized to this point that they were just a means to an end. This, like Shelby said in our conversation, I mean, it's been, I've been thinking about this since then. That was like a hundred years ago, more than a hundred years ago, and nothing has changed. After the fire, company lawyers tried to spin that these workers were not much of a loss, that they were not very smart, They did not contribute much to society. They were basically subpar humans. And therefore, what happened was no big deal. Yes, this really happened. And if that sounds antiquated to you, I have to remind you that even today, we use similar language to dehumanize workers, like unskilled and uneducated, even pointing out that they live in poverty, as if that means it's perfectly okay to underpay and overwork them. I keep thinking back to the part of the conversation when Shelby and I talked about how when you're in the industry, when you're the buyer, you don't know the repercussions of asking the factory or the vendor to speed up the order. Hell, we didn't even talk about the Rana Plaza factory disaster even one time at work. I've never heard it come up. I only learned about it via my extremely avid consumption of current events, and I can assure you that none of my coworkers wanted to hear about it because it's disturbing. You don't realize when you're working in that office, when you're so stressed out, when you're probably being bullied by your own boss, when other people are being hyper-competitive with you, when no one is working together as a team to support you. You don't know that pulling up that order two weeks to make your manager happy is going to hurt someone. You don't know the suffering that comes from placing that order last minute and demanding that it ship ASAP. You're just doing what you're told and hoping to keep your head above water. In the industry, you are so separated from the workers making the products you've developed and ordered, you have no idea who is making any of it or how they are getting the job done. And... There's no one to ask about it. I, even if they did know, they probably aren't supposed to tell you. 
I suspect that this is intentional because who could bear the gravity of knowing that? But I wonder if we could shine a brighter spotlight on the workers around the world making the stuff we buy. Could we change minds within the corporate offices where these orders are being written? Because like I said, once again, when you're in the office and you're a buyer, when you're a designer, you don't know who makes these clothes. You don't know the story. And I wonder if any of you who have listened to Clothes Horse who do work in the industry, if it has opened your eyes to that and how you feel about that. Because I do think it would be really cool to start having these conversations in the buying office, in the design office. I know, listen, I'm not expecting all of you to go do that because I know the few times I have brought this up at work, it has not gone well. (laughs) Um, And I don't want you to lose your job because you brought it up. But it does make me wonder if enough people were thinking about it, could we make a major change there? The future is solidarity. It's realizing that you, the office worker, the buyer, the designer, the marketing person, the social worker, the bartender, the barista, the manager, you have more in common with the other workers in the world than you do with the executives. When we realize that, we can band together, we can unite our energies, and we can truly exert some serious power. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, as always, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. The more, the merrier. And don't forget, you can find us on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. Every Friday, I've been doing an Instagram Live at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Last Friday, Haley from CloseHorse.World joined me, and we broke apart a very ridiculous article that's been kind of going around social media from Country Living Magazine about 40 things you should never buy at a thrift store. It was garbage and was fun to talk about. So we're going to be doing more stuff like that in the future as well. Also, if you want to meet other Clothes Horse listeners, join the Clothes Horsing Around Facebook group. And as always, please go check out the department. We did a really cool episode this week we called The Ethan Hawk Effect. It's about how 90s slacker pop culture icons kind of messed with our ability to make good dating decisions as adults. It's a fun listen. Maybe it'll change your life. And thank you, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. Bye.